Service Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh dear brothers, sisters, friends and those foes amongst you. I pray you're all well and welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers Podcast with your host Tidi Hussain and my co-host. Assalamu alaikum everyone, Aki Hussain. And um, we have a very special guest uh, and again I'm trying to work on this whole kind of thesaurus vocab thing about special guests but uh, today's guest is someone who's very close to me, someone very dear to me. Someone whose counsel I take very seriously, who I consider to be a friend and a companion, and uh, someone who I feel will play an important role in the future of Islam and Muslims in Britain, and that is Sheikh Saad Rashid from Birmingham, Istan. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum I was going to say Birmingham, Istan, Birmingham, Sharif, but it, it requires something at the end of Birmingham. Birmingham, Istan, Sharif. Why not? Yo, how was your journey here? Alhamdulillah, very good. Um, we had one stopover and then we got to Bedford Sharif. Yeah, yeah. We've not got to that. that really? The, the maqam of Bedford hasn't got there. We have Luton Sharif. Oh, yeah. down the road. Yeah, down the road. You know, being a scholar and prior to that, a student of knowledge, born and raised in Birmingham, right? Yes, born and raised in Birmingham. It has its very unique challenges. I'll tell you why that is. It's because Birmingham has been nearly always in the press for good, bad and ugly. But of late, a lot of bad stuff. ISIS fighters, foil terror plots, Trojan horse, the LGBT row, stabbings, drugs, you name it. Do you think being a scholar in Birmingham has its own unique challenges? Living in Birmingham, firstly, Birmingham has a unique history within uh, the UK also because you have the likes of Matthew Bolton and Joseph Chamberlain and uh, Joseph Priestley. Okay. Uh, all these, these historical figures who... The Lloyds Bank yeah, yeah. was founded in Birmingham. So the Muslims, the Muslim migration to Birmingham started in the mid-1900s from the 1950s. So uh, people from the Indian subcontinent, they when they migrated, they migrated with a different mindset to the political refugees that come now. So that makes our background more confident in political issues so when we we we're free to criticize uh in terms of politics we're free to speak up uh, how we think uh, what we are thinking regarding leaders and that's mainly because the the mindset of our forefathers when they came they came as free people mm. and came there to work so when they settled in birmingham unfortunately with the new generation what i feel they abandoned the good qualities of the old generation, kept the bad qualities and adopted only the bad qualities of the host mm. country. Mm. And they didn't adopt the good qualities of the host country. So that then is magnified in some of the... So what are some of these qualities? For instance, football culture, you have people, uh, Muslims, adopting a football hooligan culture. But... Uh, likewise, he's one of them. They will have. Uh, I don't think the uh, inshallah the sheikh would admit he's not found that to be the case. Not yet. You're not going to exactly start singing. I think you should cover your brother if you if you feel. Okay. Sorry, sheikh. If you feel. Uh, okay. He okay. does have those qualities, but and what they did have is uh, the, some of the bad qualities of uh, the host country they mm. adopted, and then the bad qualities of the former countries they kept so because of that uh, when muslims do something 
Mm. That that is criminal. Mm. That is magnified in the media. Mm. But the only way for Muslims to avoid this is Islam, meaning adopting the adab mannerisms of Islam, mm. which is the the prophetic way. Of course, but you know, um, you know, you know, when you say some of the bad aspects of the whole nation, would you say then that's the kind of like the lifestyle choices? Let's say. Clubbing, uh, partying, uh, violence, violence, engaging quick in quick money. Yeah, quick money, engaging in vice. Is that the kind of things that you're saying that they may have adopted? Oh, do you yes, have, because do you... when when the early generation came in the 1950s, they worked for their money. They didn't have this concept of quick money. Mm. They would do shifts in factories for 12 hours and more. Uh, the properties that they bought were bought with hard-earned money. Uh, the wealth that they acquired was halal, what we would term as being halal. But some of the new generation, uh, the way they want money is quick money and uh, money that uh, is not from halal income. And this then evolves into drug dealing mm. and other bad habits. You just say then what's actually happened to third, fourth generation Muslims, uh, whether it be Br- uh, Birmingham or even beyond, is that they're merely just moving with the trends of society because this whole kind of concept of quick money and the, 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 the not just the drug deal, but the kind of whole kind of um, millennial, the millennial craze, yeah, quick money, work very little, forget the nine to five, find a way to make money that is easy, effortless, you look really special doing it at the same time, um, flamboyance. Actually, this was done in the 90s as well, because prior to uh, the millennial period, mm. in the 1990s, there was not much, much difference from my observation okay. of Birmingham, uh, meaning the bad boy culture, buying certain cars, uh, wearing certain clothes, wearing certain clothes. If you remember, in those days, they had like Boss and Kalkani. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By me mentioning Kalkani, that would evoke memories for some people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the spliffy mm. jeans. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a type of dress. And then the, the growth of rap culture and uh, glorifying Muharramat, uh, yeah. meaning what we term as being those things which are prohibited. Uh, if you, in fact, if you study the Tavistock Institute and how programming works, one of the uh, methods of programming is popular culture. So, mm-hmm. what you make popular mm-hmm. beco- uh, becomes the culture of that society. So, popular culture in the sixties with with the Beatles and LSD and uh, Aldous Huxley yeah, yeah. Uh, writing on his experiences of taking LSD. The whole hippie movement, the hipster movement. Yes, but Muslims were not in Western society at that time mm. in large numbers. But now in the uh, we are here in large numbers. Our Muslim youth are adopting that uh, culture also, but it goes down with social programming. So mm. how social programming works in the 90s was with television. Now it's with internet and Facebook and, and social media, social media and other things. But you know, uh, but back to the whole, you know, Birmingham as a city, right? You know, but besides London, it really does shine out in terms of. Uh, I, I don't like doing this because I don't want to caricature your city, but the reality is that there's always stuff happening in Birmingham, and of course, people who live outside of Birmingham would have a very caricaturized opinion of another city, because we're going to base it on two things. 
the small uh, observations and experiences we have of the city and being coverage. there and whatever's covered on social media, internet and news. So the reason why we have these kind of like um, carte blanche opinions of Birmingham or parts of London is because that's, I guess that's the only experience that we have. Like Sheikh Daniel, Sheikh Daniel, a colleague and, and a friend of yours issued a video statement about, I think it was last, from not the Ramadan, it's the last Ramadan, about the stabbings that were taking place in Birmingham, Muslims killing Muslims. That wasn't a norm in the 90s. Like, yes, Muslim gangs for Muslim gangs, but literally there's Muslim shabab killing each other uh, at a very young age. How, how, how do you deal with this madness in Birmingham? Well, certain things uh, we cannot deal with. We have to be honest, meaning if something becomes a social trend, mm. it's very difficult to stop a wave, meaning if, if a wave... Uh, what the ulama would refer to as fitan, mm. tribulations. Mm. And the Messenger of Allah sallallahu told us that uh, in that time, kun hilsa baytik, be the hills of your house. Hills is the cloth that is placed on the seating area, mm. meaning stay in your house at a time of fitna, tribulation. So one thing that we divorce from our conversations is Ashratu Sa'a, the signs of the end of times. Okay. And how the Messenger of Allah sallallahu told the uh, enviro of the end of times and told us regarding what is occurring now even in Al-Hijaz Al-Muqaddas. Yes. Meaning the Western... Yeah, the liberalization uh, reforms, the clubs, the concerts, uh, the Statue of Liberties and all that. So this Imagine. again falls into globalization and social programming. So it's not limited to Birmingham, meaning this phenomenon is not limited to Birmingham. It's something observed even in the Muslim heartlands. Like you said, in Jeddah, mm. in the city of Jeddah, now we have concerts, which was unthought of in previous times. So we are at the ala washki al mahdi, meaning the threshold at, at the appearance of the ashrat, the major ashratu sa'a. The major ashratu sa'a, 10 signs, but the the signs that occur before. So the, the minor signs. Meaning, the, 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 we are at the no, threshold. The major are 10, no, Sheikh? Yes, so we are at the threshold of those mm. major signs. Mm. The threshold, meaning all the minus, majority of the minor signs have occurred. The hadith states, You shall observe uh, the naked, barefoot, destitute, poor people competing in building, uh, constructing tall buildings. The, the tallest building is in UAE, UAE, and now in uh, in Saudi Arabia. They're competing. They're, comp they're competing to construct a uh, building taller than the one in mm. UAE. Mm. So globalization has led to meaning an American centralized American culture being uh, exported throughout the world, and the the stabbings are just a consequence of. Uh, social engineering. So you're saying that the capitalist world order, and, the, and that's essentially what it is, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a capitalist, secular, liberal world order. And you're saying that things like stabbings and gang violence and substance abuse is a mere, uh, an inevitable outcome of that system. One thing the Messenger of Allah وسلم, foretold is Kathratul Haraj. Hmm. And they said, the companion said, what, uh, meaning Kathratul uh, Haraj, meaning excessive. Uh, haraj. So they said, what is Haraj? Meaning it was an, uh, an Ethiopian word. Mm. And the messenger, because in Arabic, there's no word that describes it, uh, this phenomenon. 
And the Prophet said, Kathratul Qatl, the uh, excessive killing and mindless killing. Mindless killing is one of the signs of Ashratu Sa'a. Mm. And within the Ashratu Sa'a. The one who's killing and the one who's being killed does not know. They do not know why they are being killed. Being killed. Mm. So, Kathratul Harj is what we are observing not only in the city of Birmingham. Let's talk about Asham in Syria, yeah. meaning uh, mindless killing in mm. Syria, mindless killing in Egypt. What occurred with uh, Abdul Fattah Sisi yeah. killing uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, anyone associated with the Muslim Brotherhood. Mm. But additional to that, even in the 1960s from uh, the time of Suharto, General Suharto, yeah, yeah. he was backed by the American CIA and uh, the estimated number of people who were killed is one million. I mean, mm. more than a million people killed just because of their affiliations with the Communist Party. And yeah. even at that time, so-called Islamic groups were utilized by the government mm. when it suited them. And this is what occurs now. And this is something that young people should be aware of, meaning where someone sincere to Islam can be manipulated by uh, a political agenda of another group. Do you think that's you know? Do, do you think to some degree that may have taken place? I don't know. Let's say in Syria. Yes, and this is what many of the ulama who were against the revolution warned against: meaning manipulation, mm. a manipulation of uh, foreign groups mm. or foreign organizations or foreign uh, intelligence services manipulating the people of Syria. Uh, why? Because the idea is to evacuate Syria. This is why Germany, why would Germany accept so many uh, Syrian refugees? Germany, the same country that was responsible for uh, human rights abuses against the Jews and many others, that country now hosts Syrians, meaning there is a reason for that. Hmm. That reason could be uh, emptying Syria of Syrians (coughs) and allowing an expansion, later <coughs> expansion of Israel, meaning uh, Greater Israel is something. Yeah, that's a real. That's the the, the the plans for Greater Israel to go into Transjordan and, and go well into even uh, the Sinai and into Mosul is it's a known thing. They want to basically um, rebuild the old um, uh, the, the Jewish state that existed during the Prophet uh, Bani Israel. It's one uh, <coughs> thing that uh, a friend of mine, an old an old friend, who passed away now. Uh, Abdul, uh, his name was uh, Sidi Ayman Ahwal. He was an English man who accepted Islam well over 40 years ago. In the 1970s, he accepted Islam. Mm. He went to Palestine and he, when, he re- when he went to Palestine, he met a priest who was an Englishman also. So he said to the priest, have you succeeded in converting any Palestinian to Christianity. The priest said, we do not come here to convert them. He said, why do you come here? He said, we come here to give them hammers. He said, what do you mean giving them hammers? He said, to fight one another. So exploitation, like in Iraq, exploitation of the Sunni Shia division, (laughs) political exploitation. Additional to that, the infighting in Syria, exploitation of the the groups of people who went to Syria as well as the Syrian population, uh, exploitation of Muslims in other places, meaning uh, disintegrating uh, the political unity of the Muslim world.
So that's something meaning we've gone away from stabbings. No, no, that's fine. And we'll, and we'll get to the state of the Ummah tools later on in the podcast. But essentially, just, just so we can close it for now until we revisit it. Basically, what you essentially said is it's the old colonial divide and rule policy, isn't it? To access Muslim lands and regions and cause division and discord to then make it easy to advance certain agendas. Let me make something clear. Any problems that we face in the Muslim world, whether in Birmingham on a, as a microcosm hmm. or the rest of the world as a, as a macro yeah. problem, uh, we are responsible. We do not lay the blame on any other group because the Prophet mentioned the nations shall call uh, the way someone is called on a platter of food mm. and the companions asked what is the reason and the, the Messenger of Allah said love of the world is one yep. and a dislike for the hereafter or death death meaning yeah. the hereafter mm. uh, and the uh, the other thing that is mentioned in the hadith is al-wahan wow. meaning al- the, the, the description of love of the world mm. and the description of a dislike for the hereafter meaning a wow. dislike to meeting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is described in the, in the one word as al-wahan mm. so al-wahan as long as there is wahan we will have stabbings meaning the essential root of the problem is spiritual and this is the essential root of our, our political, economic, military problems is spiritual. Al-Wahan only happens because of a weakness of Iman, a weakness of faith. Mm. And a weakness of faith is because of a lack of understanding of our faith, mm. meaning a rational problem, but as well as a spiritual uh, problem. But the rational problem, again, goes back to social programming, how we are raised, what type of uh, in, environment we live in, what is placed in our minds. And this is where uh, popular culture and all this, uh, d- these diff- different things associated with not only the Tavistock Institute, but mm. so many different uh, social engineering programs that are occurring and have occurred in the I was past. getting worried because you pointed at the Blood Brothers and I was like, oh God, I hope we don't fall under that popular culture. No, it's a good logo. It's a good logo. But Shad, you know, you said something that we are to blame, yeah? Are you now saying we are to blame from the perspective that there is a spiritual crisis within the Ummah, which is then making us susceptible and vulnerable to kind of just take things which are haram, whether they be ideologies and lifestyles? Or are you saying that because of our sins, we are in the situation that we're in? Which is it? Are they the two same thing? Uh, There's two scenarios here. Firstly, in places where um, America has left depleted uranium, mm. like Iraq in the 1990s, and young children are born deformed, yep. and uh, uh, more or less a nuclear war was waged against Iraq mm. uh, with depleted uranium and so many different things. Those people are in ibtida, meaning uh, tribulation, we do not blame them. I'm talking about people like us who are in afia, meaning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not placed us in such situations. Mm. People who are living... Uh, I've heard some preachers, they preach strongly against Muslims living in places like Iraq. Mm. It's very easy to do that on a platform where you are in yourself in a state of 
uh, well-being. Jesus, that's what I was referring to. I've, I've, I've heard some ulama say that, w- that our sisters being raped and killed in Syria and what's happening in Gaza, Palestine, Palestine is because the safs of Fajr is not full. Or it's because Fulan and Fulan has not kept his fast. And, 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 and because we are a rebellious people here. We're a sinful people. We're a sinful people here. And therefore those things are happening to our brothers and sisters elsewhere. No, we cannot judge the situation of the people in those countries. Mm. Meaning... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only knows what is the reality of the people of those countries. Mm. We have to judge our own situation. So I, I would only talk about Birmingham myself, starting yeah. with myself, is that generally or specifically to myself, I must make tawbah, I must, I must make amends, and then people around me encourage them to make tawbah. But as for situations in Iraq or situations in Syria, Palestine, Kashmir, meaning those are universal problems of the Muslim world. Of course, Kathratul, uh, the Wahan is a universal problem, Wahan. Mm. No doubt, if the Muslim leadership from uh, scholars to uh, political leaders did not have Wahan in their hearts, they would be politically stronger in order to resist uh, globalization today. There is no doubt in that. Mm. So the Tawbah starts from the leadership, meaning uh, the scholars should start with themselves rather than being judgmental regarding people in Gaza. In fact, people in Gaza are the most rewarded people on the face of the earth today with alongside with the people of Al-Quds. The Hadith states, لَا تَزَالُ طَائِفَةٌ مِّنْ أُمَّتِي يُقَاتِلُونَ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ That a group of people shall not cease fighting in the way of Allah in one narration, it mentioned Wahum ala abwab al-Quds. They are surrounding the doors of al-Quds. It's the people of al-Masjid al-Aqsa and the, the surrounding areas which we observe today. Mm. Meaning the, the hadith is true. Mm. Um, Birmingham madness. There was a lecture which you gave, I believe, two years ago. Five pillars. We shared it recently. It was about the issue of janaza and drug dealers. Now there was a misconception. That you were saying, like when I watched that, you know, which segment I'm talking about. It was it was an eight to nine minute segment from a wider talk where you spoke about uh, imams and faith leaders discouraging them from attending the janaza prayers. You weren't saying, if I'm correct, you weren't saying you can't pray janaza prayers. It was a specific message to ulama and imams. Can you clarify? Yes, there's. Communally, there's a, an issue where leaders in the community glorify anyone who has uh, excessive wealth and is able to use force and violence on people. Mm. There is a respectability that they give those type of people. And this filters down to... Uh, what we would call ostensibly religious people. So if a person who is violent and a person who sells drugs uh, in, in the community in, in, masjid, in, intimidates people, can use force. If he are... enters a masjid, there are, there are old people, people in their 70s who mm. would stand up out of respect for it. So when one of them dies, uh, there is a glorification of his uh, death. And this glorifying that is one of the reasons why uh, we are being punished 
in different ways. There is in Al-Quran Al-Kareem, meaning Sunanullah fil Kaum is the laws of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in, in the universe. There is a way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala punishes a people by them fighting one another. Mm. So some of those ulama who may be mentioning what's happening and occurring in Syria may be referring to that. Yeah. Meaning, uh, there is, uh, an example of this, Abdul Rauf uh, al-Munawi, rahimahullah, in his book, Faydul Qadir, he mentions his commentary on al-Jami al-Sadir of al-Imam Suyuti, he mentions that uh, when the had is not carried out for zina, mm. adultery, yeah. then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends down, meaning creates within the people, uh, or sends amongst uh, the people, shayateen, mm. that then sow discord amongst them that leads to killing, mass killing. This, this effect is mentioned in hadith, mm. meaning if someone doesn't give zakat, zakatul amwal in one hadith in the Tabarani, the hadith states, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala withholds the rain from the people, which causes famine. Mm. So a famine in a country could sometimes be due to the fact that the Muslims of that country are not paying their zakat. So, so with regards to, let's say, we're not, we're not talking about the small-time drug dealers. Uh, we're, we're talking about the big boys, yeah? The who have massive reputations. Um, their families or their tribes are also uh, interlinked with Masajid. We know this exists up and down the country. Dynasties. I, yeah, like, they're, like, they're, like, they're like dynasties, right? Where the menfolk would, some of the menfolk would be involved in Masajid in committees. And then the sons or the uncles within from the same family are renowned big drug dealers, right? So when in that eight to nine segment uh, lecture that you gave, you made a comparison to arm dealers. Do you, do you recall what I'm talking yes. about? And so, so there's two things I want to ask you. Why did you make that comparison to arm dealers? And number two, is there any record of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi um, avoiding certain janazah prayers due to who it was. I heard there was a narration that he used to avoid the janazah prayers of people who had debt. Have you heard yes. that? So there is a narration the Prophet would ask regarding people, does he have a debt? Because that involves hukukul ibad, mm. the rights of people. Now my experience living in Birmingham, because you mentioned Birmingham specifically, in 1997, when I was 13 years old, Mashallah. 1997, uh, I went to a masjid and in the masjid uh, there was a man in the hallway selling books and a young man came in and he took 10 pounds from him and he said I need this money to phone a taxi and pay for a taxi and I will give you the money so the man who was at, on the stall, book stall he went with the young man to phone the taxi and I just followed to observe. So this was on the same road. The young man phoned someone and then waited and a car parked up and a Muslim, meaning someone who appeared Muslim in the sense what I mean by that is... Uh, he looked like any other... He's an Apna. An Asian, Asian, an Asian. Asian. He's an Apna, yeah. He parked up. The young man gave him tempan and he took uh, some packet of what they call brown. Heroin. Heroin. Mm. And he went in, back in the telephone box and he took a piece of foil out. In those days, the Kit Kat chocolate would have a foil. I think they stopped that because of this. Mm. Uh, drug addicts would buy Kit Kat chocolate because of the foil. And he placed the brown 
under foil and then when the the man the, the man the bookstore man when he attempted to open the phone the young man would become violent so this was 10 pound of that person spent on on drugs when i went back home and i informed my father regarding this experience so this is a common experience of growing up in birmingham mm. my father said to me that these drug addicts they would even sell their mother's own gold we know this happened we know of brothers locally who have robbed money from their own mothers exactly so the comparison to arms dealers of drug dealers is because they break up families they destroy families so the number of stories that have come my way from young uh, from my childhood is so, I mean saddening stories we know these stories the, the Have comparison was based on that mm. sure. um and you know uh, is just 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 to uh, some clarity is there an established opinion amongst at least the hanafi school where big mujrimin like big criminals like uh highway robbers <clears throat> those who do armed robbery uh, and things like that can imams avoid their janaza prayers in not 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 praying like if they're muslim and they're major 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 criminals major criminals and would you advocate against it actually publicly in maraq al-falah one of the works of fiqh they mention a, a person who dies uh, while showing silah silah is a weapon, weapon. Uh, a shahid bi silah meaning someone who died in the process of showing his weapon and attempting to kill people if he dies like this his janaza is avoided so wow. based upon this juzi meaning this uh, specific ruling you can analyze different rulings where someone who falls into that uh, category people of influence should avoid their funerals because they are mufsiduna fil ard cause corruption in the earth hmm. and drug dealers do cause corruption in the earth muslims muslim scholars should not glorify uh, drug dealers or meaning i'll give you an example if someone has an organization an islamic organization or a group uh, and a, a person of influence who is a drug dealer joins that group it's glorified without that person doing tauba the tauba is a condition of one of the sufi guides he has a book on uh, on meaning authentic sufism mm. he mentions one of the criticisms of some of the shiukh of his time saying that they would accept uh, as students people who he, the shiukh ha- knew that they have not repented from their ways this is a so, the, so they live double lives kind of yes so they join an islamic group in that time the tariqa meaning they join a sufi order mm. but in today's comparison would be not only sufi or does any organization and the mm-hmm. leadership would know that this person has not repented of his sins he continuously does those sins and they do not make them repent either subhanallah mm. staying on the theme of birmingham right and and kind of trying to revisit some of your earlier years um you came to prominence uh, at least in the online sphere beyond birmingham with some very uh, what do i say i wouldn't say controversial but very well known debates uh, or or your involvement in certain exchanges with scholars from other backgrounds namely the salafis so you had uh, sheikh murtaza khan and then there was sheikh something damashq was his name abdul rahman abdul rahman damashq so so you from came, lebanon from lebanon so you came and and how young were you then you were very well, uh, to tell the truth my first uh, 
famous uh, interviewers on the BBC about the army on the British army on the British army where I said it's imp- it's prohibited for Muslims to join the British army mm. but the more debating aspect of you because 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 you if you go up and down the country and you say Sheikh Sarah Rashid the first thing is Sheikh Sarah Rashid who debated Besides the other great works that you've done, mashallah, may Allah accept it for me. But, but, but there's the, the debates, is, it was something which... It's a paper, the, you're like a pay-per-view attraction. Well, that happened, <laughs> the, uh, that happened growing up in the 90s. Because in the 90s, you had uh, a growth of madkhali. Uh, madkhal meaning arabi uh, al-madkhali. It's a particular strand of Salafi thinking. Saudi Arabia, yeah. yeah. Former ikhwani. Yeah. Former Ikhwani. And the only reason why he left the Ikhwan was because after Juhayman al Utaybi took, took the, took the took up arms and, yeah. Uh, yeah. meaning he took up arms and he, he hijacked the, the Kaaba, didn't he? Meaning the Masjid al Masjid al Haram. Yeah. And uh, in 1979. So after that, Rabi al Madkhali moved away from the Ikhwan for the Qutbi way uh, ideology mm. and then he moved towards. A pro-government, uh, a pro-government way of thinking. Mm. So, in the nineties, there was an influx of uh, Salafism in Birmingham. Uh, at that time, and I'm telling you why this led me to debating yeah. Salafis. You had the translation of the Prophet's prayer described by Usama Hassan. Yeah. Oh yes, now, that, that was very well known. Then you also had Ihsan Ilahi Zahir's book, The Brailwis, published uh, in Pakistan before the glossy edition. Mm. And then you had uh, Bilal Phillips' yes. book, uh, Monotheism. Yes. And you had uh, meaning an excess of literature that was published in the 1990s for uh, the English-speaking Muslims because our forefathers, our grandparents, were not conversant or, or, or didn't read English. Yeah, yeah. My grandfather f- fought in World War II, but the most he knew was the orders he would take mm. from the British officers. So we were the f- from the first generation that was conversant in English. So this was the first type of literature that young people were exposed to mm. at that time. But there was not only literature being published in the 1990s, there was also ardent Salafis, pseudo-Salafis, going around to variant masajid and questioning young people who were worshippers. Meaning I prayed from a young age, I didn't have a a conversion story. Mm. So from a young age I've been praying, my parents made me pray and uh, we've had a religious family in terms of prayer and other things. So when I would attend the masajid to pray uh, at the back of the masjid and I was in 1996, I went to Islamabad with my father and my father took me to Ziaul Haq's grave. The general? Just read Fatiha for his soul. Mm. He just said, look, this is Ziaul Haq, even though my father was in pro Ziaul Haq. He just showed me to show me different places. And he took me to... But Ziaul Haq did have a very important role in Islamizing the Pakistani army. Yes, so my father just took me to his yeah. grave and uh, to some other graves of some of the people buried around Faisal Masjid yeah, yeah. in Islamabad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah. And when we went to Faisal Masjid, they had a bookshop. So I'm talking 13 years old because when I look back now, 
uh, children of that age need to be inspired. Hmm. So my father said, buy any book you want. So I bought a book on the Battle of Badr. I bought a book on Doomsday. Smashed it. Yeah, a book on a few other few books. Yeah. Read those books. I would go to in Birmingham. I would go to Begami Islam Trust, which is a Jamaat-e Islami uh, bookshop. But the the person running the bookshop was a Sufi. But he, was, he wasn't Jamaat-e Islami himself, and he would have Sufi literature and political literature. So, uh, the, at the same time, the Salafis were approaching us. So I would sometimes go to the masjid to pray. And at the end of the prayer, some of the young Salafis who, funnily enough, I meet them now. They've changed? They've changed. They've, they've toned down, meaning their rhetoric has toned down. But they would stop me. And at that time, I was memorizing Quran in our local masjid. So they would say to me, uh, you are memorizing Quran? I would say yes. So they would say to me, uh, recite this surah. Just randomly? Randomly, just to test my knowledge. Hmm. So I would recite the surah. So at one point I forgot to say, A'udhu billahi rajim. So they condemned me harshly for that. How, I mean, how, how, young, how, how, how old were you then? 13, 12 or 13. 13 in 1997 they started. So I went to Pakistan in 96. Hmm. Basic understanding of Islam. Hmm. Meaning the standard, you, if you remember Ghulam Sarwar's book. Yes, Islam, yes, yes, of course, yeah. standard. Having read that, studied yeah. that basic understanding of Islam. Yeah. Uh, being from Kashmir, Sufi background. Mm. So I, my father took me to Bawa Shadi Shaheed's Mazar. We didn't do any shirk. Mm. There was no circumambulation. There was no kissing of the grave. Did you ever go to Kadi Sharif? No. Okay. We went to Bawa Shadi Shaheed, which is in Pimbar. Okay. So... Uh, meaning a simple understanding of Islam, you go to Data Darbar, we didn't ask help from the dead as they claim, meaning you do Fatiha and you go. Mm. It's a historical uh, place. Ali al-Hajjah Jawari, contemporary of uh, the author of Salatul Qushayriya, meaning a grave from 900 years in that region. Nevertheless, the point being that this was my first exposure to pseudo-Salafism. So, when they would approach me, they would ask, Ain Allah, where is Allah? <laughs> oh God. And I would say, what do you mean, Ain Allah? 13 years old. Um, seeking help from the dead is haram, shirk. I said, we don't seek help from the dead. Mm. Meaning, we seek help <laughs> from Allah. 13-year-old shirk to give. What's this guy talking about? <laughs> you can't, you must recite Al-Fatiha behind the Imam. That's a ficky one, that is. That's like, they were so stringent in that time. I know Green Lane Masjid has changed their stance recently. But at that time, Green Lane and Wright Street. So Wright Street in Madkhali. That's, that's Abu Khadija guys, right? Yes. Yeah. So And and, and I had discussions with Abu Khadija as a child. Really? Yes. He he may not remember, but I will. you've evoked memories, so I'll mention them. Yeah, here. please do. So... <laughs> In, in so they would all go to Green Lane at that time. So you had an amalgamation of the Green Lane, uh, where which is a broader Salafism. Yeah. Because I, so just in just five years, basically there was a 
Just for our viewers from the UK, because we have a lot of views from the, from the States. Um, in the 90s, there was a surge of uh, Salafi Dawah in the UK, as well as uh, Dawah from other organizations. I mean, Hizbut Tahrir was very prominent in the 90s as well. I mean, they're still, very, they're, they're still very active. But then there was a split which was as a result of the first Gulf War. I think that's when the split emerged amongst the Salafis, those who kind of sided with the pro-government agenda, agenda, which was like the Madkhalis, and then there were those who, were, who kind of disagreed with the fact that the Saudi government had invited American soldiers to the Haram, um, and that's where the kind of split happened. But the period you're talking about, I think that was before the split even happened. I think. Well, the the split was under the surface at the time. Okay. But they worked together, so they gave me. At that time, how they approached me was like this. Yeah. And I went to our local masjid. Yeah. And uh, the Sheikh who's passed away, Rahimullah, was a Naqshbandi Sheikh mm. from Pakistan, from Sialkot. Yeah. He said, I said to him, why do we recite Fatiha beyond the Imam? Why do we say Amin bil Jahar, meaning Amin loudly? He gave me his answers. But at that time, it wasn't sufficient. Mm. So the traditional ulama were unprepared for this assault. Meaning many of the converts to Salafism you have today converted in that period. The 90s, Shah, I mean, we spoke about this a number of times whenever we meet. The 90s was a key period because... Prior to the 90s, the demographic majority of UK Muslims was Indo-Pak Bangladeshi. And it was either you came from families that were either Barelvi background or Diobandi background. And that was essentially what, do you think that's a correct generalization? That's correct. So, so 90s was the first time that, that sons from that generation, the third, fourth, third generation Muslims, were now kind of rebelling against what their forefathers... So they would have simple delete like... Mawlid is haram. How do you know it's haram? Saudi does not do Mawlid. Saudi is the cradle of Islam. Mm. Or even though that term is incorrect mm. because Islam is predates. So, of course. Meaning it's from Adam yeah, Of course. Meaning the Quran was revealed in, in Makkah al-Mukarramah. So therefore they don't do Mawlid. So this mm. was the level of reasoning mm. people had. But of course the Arguments partly due to my contributions as well have become more sophisticated now. But what happened in that period of time, they would approach me with these questions, and then what they started to do is giving me free literature. And I really thank them because they gave me the book, The Brelvis. Mm. Oh, that was an infamous book. In our household, we knew a Sheikh Abdul Qadir al Jilani. So, a Sheikh Abdul Qadir al Jilani, we knew. So, I would say to my mother, Why do we do Yarmi? My mother said, uh, We do this because a Sheikh Abdul Qadir al Jilani did it. Simple answer. But then, when they gave me the book, The Brelvis, I was exposed to Imam Ahmad Rida Khan. Meaning, prior to that, you didn't know who he was? Prior to that, people had a basic understanding, meaning they knew. Not everyone, meaning there were families who were very familiar with him, mm. but there was no uh, uh, zealous mm. movement around Imam Ahmad Khan. But they gave me the book, and really, when I think back, between the ages of 13 and 14, so I was moving on to 14, 97 and 98, mm. that period of time, I read uh, the Brailwis, that book by Ihsan Ilai Zahir. I got familiar with Ismail Dehlawi. And I acquired one or two volumes of Fatawari Diwa just to check what type of book is this, even mm. though my Urdu was weak and I, I could not read Arabic at the time. Then they gave me also the Usul Sunnah of Imam Ahmad bin Hanbal in English. Yeah, yeah. 
they still have the same edition. These are famous Salafi uh, Dawud Salam books. They are. So Bar Bahari's Creed. In fact, Salafi yeah. publication. Salafi publication. That's it. So Bar Bahari's Creed is translated by uh, uh, Talha uh, Dawud Berbank. Yes, yes, yes. He's passed away now. Yeah. I was at his funeral in Al uh, Masjidul Haram when he he died. Sadly, he died. Mm. Uh, his uh, coach blew up. Hmm. And he died in a fire. And they, when I was in the Haram, Al Masjid Al Haram, they prayed his funeral at that time. But anyhow, in that was in 2010 or 2009 in the Hajj. But in that time, they gave me the his translation of Barbahari's Creed, and they gave me uh, Albani's work, Tawassul and Wa'u its types and its rulings. Hmm. They gave me this book. Now, when I think back at the age of 13, reading all of this literature, I also read the counter literature provided by. So at that time, the, the Sunni uh, movements did not have much literature. They had very basic counters. So Gungul Sharif at that time, they published Satanic Scholars, which was like a book, a simple pamphlet <laughs> published against... Um, the Salafis, yeah? The Salafis and the Ubandis. <laughs> okay. And then they had Raza Academy. Blood Brothers. Stock, Stockport. <laughs> Stockport. There was a Raza Academy. They had books published. And I would go to GN printers. People in Birmingham would know these places. And I would buy uh, Raza Academy books and read them. Now when I think back, very basic literature. This was in around 97. And... I would also go to the the Begami Islam Trust, uh, the bookshop. Yeah. The the person who ran the bookshop was a Sunni, and he would provide Sufi literature. So you had a Sunnah foundation of a Sheikh uh, Hisham Kabani mm. publishing responses to the Salafis at that time. I would read all of that literature, and whatever I would get my hands on, I would read. At that time. Uh, the local imam gifted me Ahmadidat's book, The Choice. Okay. So, The Choice, that's going on to it, but why I went into debating. Mm. So when he gave me The Choice, I read all of The Choice. Volume 1 was at, at that time. They had Ahmadidat's number in the inside cover. Mm. So in those days, landlines, if you remember landlines. Yeah, yeah, of course. Nowadays, people very rarely have landlines. I picked up the house phone and I rang South Africa. My parents didn't know. They may have wondered after why the bill, bill was high, high. But I <laughs> rang and Yusuf Didat picked up and he said, my father is listening to you now. And I said, I've read your book and I'm very appreciative of your book. And his father listened to Mashallah. my entire conversation. Then in that time, that inspired me to go to the churches and debate the Christians. So there's a, in Sparkbrook, there's a Jehovah's Witness Center on Main yeah. Street. Yeah, yeah. The main Jehovah's Witness Center in the entire Birmingham, and I would go there regularly with the Bible. And remember, I was fourteen at the time. You were doing this at fourteen. At fourteen, and the Combat Kit came out in that year. So Ahmadidat's Combat Kit, Volume Two of the Choice, came out. Mm. There was a, a revert brother at the time uh, who, who who gave me the Volume Two, yeah. and I read the entire volume. I went to IPCI on Kamju Road. Mm. My father would take me sometimes. And I bought all of Ahmadida's literature. Everything. Uh, even though they should give it out free at that time, they would price it 5p, 10p. I bought all of that literature and read. Uh, so regularly I would go to IPCI and to 
Pehram Islam Trust to buy books. But the interactions with the Salafis increased because they would take me to Green Lane. So I would go to Green Lane and... I'm, As like that brothers from the Salafi background would take you to Green Lane. And then in an attempt to convert me. Oh, okay. okay. This was an attempt to convert me. So they would tell me Allah is in a direction. The Dalil they would present is when Fir'aun addressed Haman. Mm. He said, build me a, a, a tower that I may go and look at the Lord of Musa. Meaning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being contained in a, in a location or by uh, time and space. But now they say he is on his arsh. Right? They would say that then as well. Oh, really? Okay. But that was one of the... Uh, but the, one of the ones they used the example of Fir'aun, yeah? It, it, that is one of the examples they, in fact, use in their literature as well. Allah. So I would go to... Regularly, they would take me. And the first thing they wanted to change was the way I prayed. Okay, so they want so, Rafi Adain, they want... Why? Amina. Because once you change the way you pray visibly different visibly different your mentality and the way you dress so i would dress in the traditional salwar kameez mm. pakistani style salwar kameez yeah. or shirt and trousers mm. but the way they would dress is they would have their trousers really high above the ankles and thobe. Uh, a thobe in those days dr martins were very common amongst them for some so reason big boots. now they've moved on to trainers yeah basically is this kind of military look was it like a military, a military, military semi-military military look, military look and a mindset so they, they had many attempts one thing did, did you ever wear a toti you wear a lungi? Uh, yes, uh, a toti is a part, a lungi or a yeah. waist strap is a you part of our culture. Good. I just my grandfather would wear that and I wear it now even around the house. Wicked. Yeah. So just want to get that. Just when you're relaxed around yeah. the house. Chilling, but yeah. not outside because okay. it's too cold in this country to wear one. So they sent me to Abu Khadija. They said he will answer your question. Level two. Level two. I went to Abu Boss. Khadija. He's sitting yeah. down. He wouldn't remember this, but I said he said to me, you can't say... Ya Rasulallah, it's shirk to say such. I said, it's in Al-Adab Al-Mufrad of Imam Bukhari. Now, I've read this. He said, if this is found in Al-Adab Al-Mufrad of Imam Bukhari, I will become a Brailwi. Now, at the time, I didn't have Al-Adab Al-Mufrad. So I went and acquired Al-Adab Al-Mufrad. And the citation is there? The citation is there. Meaning, Imam Bukhari has a book on mannerisms yeah. and he has the dua to recite when you when someone's leg falls asleep and the dua is to say ya muhammada famous citation ibn sunni mentions this also even ibn taymiyyah cites this so that is found in al-adabul mufrad but i never got down to finding abu khadija ever again but at the time i didn't realize this is abu khadija or who he is mm. so this was my experience in the in the 90s in the Additional to that, people were circulating cassettes. Remember the TDK yeah, yeah, yeah. cassettes mm -hmm. of uh, Sheikh Faisal. Mm. Now, Sheikh Faisal. Sheikh Faisal, Jamaiki. Yeah, yeah, God. He was a different brand of Salafism. And those tapes, when you listen to them, he would say things like, There are only five million Muslims in the world. Mm. Why? He would say, The Shia al Kufar, all disbelievers. The Sufis are al-Kuffar, the Brelvis are al-Kuffar, the Diobandis are al-Kuffar. He would say uh, the Saudi Salafis. This is where I realized that there's a distinction between <laughs> Mandhalis and... When you got to that stage. Uh, so the Saudi Salafis are Kuffar, 
So how many Muslims are there with our way of thinking? He said this in a lecture. Only five million Muslims in the entire world. You remember this was famous? No, it was unbelievably famous. Yeah, but Sheikh Faisal al was known as a takfirinator. Yeah, yeah, he was. I, I mean, look, he's also got very famous debates against, in West Indies against the Christians, mm. but he was very well known for those So, so that was the environment of Birmingham, and then yeah. you had Birmingham Central Mosque, yeah. uh, Belgrave Road Masjid. Yeah. At that time, you had. So, as a person who, who wandered everywhere to see what happened, remember, I would go to school, I was in secondary school at the time. Mm. So, we would go to Belgrave Road Masjid to pray. And when we would go to pray, you had uh, the students of Riyadhul Haq conducting circles there yeah. at that time. So he was having his run-ins with the Salafis. And then you had Hizbut Tahrir holding their circles at the back of the masjid. So as a child, I would go and sit in the circles to hear both sides. Different circles. Di- different circles. To just to hear. So I would listen to the, the Hizbut Tahrir and they would stick to one subject. Khilafa, Khilafa, Khilafa. <laughs> and then I would sit in the... Uh, Riyadh al-Haq circles just to see what he discusses so that was my introduction to the Omandis meaning uh, the first interaction I had with the Omandis was with the circle of Riyadh al-Haq then the Shia there was uh, initially I read the work of Ihsan Ilahi Zahir which again he's not a reliable source but that exposed me to some of the local Shia and we had basic debates with them and this spurred me into some of the early theological debates this is of course prior to studying prior to studying just at the age of 13 and 14 so okay so so, so it sounds like you had an insane early teens right like literally you were in a this is just 13 14 we're touching we haven't even got to like 16 17 okay so so, so 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 13 14 when did you actually then begin um you know formal studying. For, formal studying well my first exposure you, you know the Sultan Bahu Trust Masjid yes. in Birmingham? Yes. Uh, what, what great work they did in the, in the 90s is that they would bring scholars from Pakistan to teach in the trust. So they brought my first teacher, uh, Alama Rasul Bakh Saidi, who's from Lahore. He's a Multani, studied in Lahore and Islamabad University. He would conduct circles uh, in the, at the side of the masjid. So... Uh, you know of uh, Sakib Shami. Yes. He would attend those circles and other people, other scholar people now who are prominent people, meaning they Att- attend those attended circles. those circles. So they introduced me to him, saying that look, if you need your answers, you need to study in a traditional method. Mm. So when I would walk past, he uh, he would teach works like Usul Shashi. But the old lithographic editions, mm. the Pakistani editions. Mm. So I would look at those editions and think, when would I be able to understand? Meaning, uh, Usulu Shashi is a book on legal theory. Yeah. You had some students who were in that class who were inspired by Hamza Yusuf, who had studied in Mauritania. So, uh, a Sheikh Hamza Yusuf at that time was inspiring a certain segment of youth mm. into studying Ajruniya, studying traditional Arabic. And uh, but at the same time, there were people who were from uh, our traditional background who were just going to traditional what we call Desi scholars and studying. Mm. Um, but you went to Syria, right? Later. Yeah. How, Le- how later? 
a few years later, meaning when I went initially, I went at the age of 17 for a visit, hmm. just for a visit for two weeks. And then the next year, I traveled to Syria for uh, for studying Arabic. How come you didn't go to Al-Azhar, like, like many do? Mm. How come you chose In Syria? Birmingham, there was a trend to go to Syria. The reason being, our teacher went to the the Sultanbo Trust Commission, the uh, the teacher, meaning Alam Rasul Bakhsaidi, to mm. choose from either Azhar or Syria. Now, he had studied in Azhar. So he went to Syria to check how Syria is like, Damascus. He, there he met the son of Sheikh Saleh Farfur, who's a student of Al-Imam Badruddin Al-Hassani, mm. who fought the uh, French yes, for the occupation French, yes, and was the Qassam's teacher. Yes, yes. So uh, Sheikh Saleh Farfur's son, Husamuddin Farfur, became a good friend of our teacher. And when... Sheikh Saidi went around Damascus. He found Damascus to be the right environment spiritually, uh, as well as the studies in Damascus are not as institutionalized. Contrary to what people think because of the propaganda against the Assad regime, hmm. the ulama are not as institutionalized. Meaning, what the regime requires from them is a license. They acquire a license from the Oqaf, not even from the regime, from the Oqaf, the endowments. And the Awqaf, the head of the Awqaf is a scholar. And they give them a license and then they sit in the masjid and teach traditional books. Meaning, unlike uh, other places where the, the government will uh, overlook what is being taught, there the scholars were more free to teach. And uh, Rasul Baksaidi says he went and he went to, a, to one of the gatherings and they were, were giving out milk and they would say, Ishrabu al-Halib wa sallu ala al-Habib which means drink milk and recite salawat on the beloved this one is heart over meaning the environment of Syria with the spiritual mm. uh, Sufi inclination of the ulama but as well as the, the ulama being learned for instance a distinction between Egypt and Syria in Syria if you study Quran under a teacher he will not take a penny from you in Azhar they take money uh, in Syria, if you study religious studies with scholars, ulama, they teach for free in the masjid. Meaning, the ulama of Sham, they, they are renowned for their taqwa, piety. So, there was a trend in the 90s of people going from Birmingham to Syria. Okay. Many students went to Syria. And uh, that trend was one of the people who started this was Alam Rasul Bakhsaidi, but there were others like the murids of Sheikh Nazim hmm. al-Haqqani they would also go to Syria because their sheikh would recommend for them to go to Syria. So, look, I mean, did you actually, so the debates, right? Okay, so so, so you were exposed to kind of exchanges with different groups, namely the Salafis, there were other groups in Birmingham. Including non-Muslims. Including, okay, including the Christians as well. You said Christians as well. But, but in terms of intra-Muslim debates, right? Do you, because, because I, I, I properly first formally met you when I chaired... Uh, the debate between yourself and Ustad Abdurrahman Hassan on uh, Istighata, right? And um, since then, there's also been an attempt at you exchanging with the individual called Ajmal Nahim, uh, known as Mufti Abu Layth. Uh, and then there was even when Nakshwani, the, the Shia figure Nakshwani, insulted Abu Bakr and, and, and others. Um, there was, there was, you, so you're still on it. 
Do you feel that there is a place for intra-Muslim debates? Yes, but the 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 only problem I find is that the the other Muslims who I've debated have not kept the level of decorum that I have attempted to keep. The decorum I kept was to raise a standard, and I even said to Naim Ajmal that if I debated an atheist, an atheist could dialogue better than the way he was dialoguing with me. And I've demonstrated this, meaning I've had debates with atheists. The atheists have demonstrated better mannerisms, less emotion, and a more objective approach to the debate. But wouldn't you say that's because there's no real sectarianism, historical sectarianism between us and the atheist? Even though the atheists as a world order are trying to diminish our faith, the intra-Muslim debates have historical roots in the Indian subcontinent or in the, or in the Arab world. Between no, the, 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 no, the what the Sheikh is talking about is etiquette and mannerism and having control. But there have, there, there's also been, historically, Muslims have engaged with atheists, Mulhidin, from the time of the famous uh, Mu'tazili debates with yes, the atheists yes. and the Ash'aris. Yes. And then from Al-Imam Ghazali. Uh, my early exposure, by the way, to Al-Imam Ghazali was at that time also. Because Which, I read he's... Uh, the 13, 14 period yes. or the Syria period? No, no, in 13, 14, because uh, uh, William Maya, I think, the translation was mm. of the, the deliverance from error, meaning Al-Munqidh min al-Dalal. So I read that work at that time. So uh, Imam Ghazali, he engaged with atheists. Mm. And uh, there has been a historical precedence with atheists. But what Muslims need to maintain, in, like for instance, Naqshwani now insulting Sayyiduna Abu Siddiq radiallahu is uncalled for. Additional to that, uh, with name Ajmal, making a mockery of, of, the, of the religious tenets. Additional to that... Fundamentals. Yes, fundamentals. So there is an essential need for decorum and good manners in when having intra-Muslim debates. But you, but you still maintain that there is a space and a need for it. Of course, because let's say a Muslim is inspired by Naqshwani. Yeah. And that Muslim adopts the position of insulting Sayyiduna Abu Siddiq That would be totally unacceptable. So how do you disarm that youngster from that belief? The only way is engagement, and engagement is debate. Okay, let's put Naqshwan in the Shia aside, right? Let's, let's put them aside. Intra-Sunni Muslim debates, those who identify as Sunni. Salafis, Diabandis, Barelvi, Sufi, Ashari, Maturidi, Athari, other. No, it's, it's rarely between Madahib because I find that those who are from the people of the Madahib, they're cool. But if broadly speaking, you would include that. It would, but, but the debates are nearly always theological. Am I correct, Sheikh? You, yeah. you, you will never have fiki debates like, uh, like back to I would avoid subsidiary debates, for all debates, because <clears throat> even though early exposure was just about Raful Yadain mm-hmm. raising the hands in prayer, placing where you place your hands in prayer. Amin will jab. But, but istighata, tawassul, uh, mawlid, um, you know, th- these kind of things, the veneration, the, the alleged veneration of saints and all these kind of if, things. If the stance that the opposing group take reaches where their claim is that their position uh, would negate our iman, then it's essential for us to debate and because, because, because it's, engage, it's, that, engage it's, with them. Because it's an issue of what belief and disbelief. Yes. Yeah? Okay. Because I and remember even, even when I met you at the Tawassul debate. I remember one, you, one of the first things you actually mentioned to Abdul Rahman Hassan, Abdul Rahman Hassan was, are you saying that this matter is haram or kufr? 
Do you remember? Yes. You said, said it, if you say it's just haram, we wouldn't have this debate. Yeah. If it's, if, if it's a, it, because he said it's kufr, we're having a debate to yeah. disprove the fact that this is kufr because that would become essential mm-hmm. upon us to disprove. So, the, a part, one thing by having gone to Syria mm. from the, ex, the experience in Birmingham and then going to Syria to Damascus. Where in all of Damascus, there was not a single Salafi masjid. They had a, a Shia, uh, what they call Imam Bara in Urdu, a Shia masjid. But that was in a certain area. But the entire Damascus only had traditional Sunni masajid and Sunni imams. Did you have any masajid? You did have Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Abdul Qadir al-Arnaud, because mm. there will be people trying to contradict me. Uh, Sheikh Abdul Qadir al-Arnaud, the muhaqiq of... Uh, uh, Jami Musul, mm. he was a Salafi, but uh, from a more traditional background. Nasiruddin al Albani also came from Damascus. Mm. So, so when you were in Syria, uh, did you find masajid that were, let's say, influenced by the Muslim Brotherhood? Or, or, or did you ever meet ulama? No one was overtly with the Brotherhood. If they were associated with the Brotherhood, it was not overtly said. I had heard from scholars that I studied with that uh, Fulan Sheikh, Fulan Sheikh is uh, Ikhwani. Mm. But they, none of the scholars were overtly with the Brotherhood or with Hezbo Tahrir or mm. with any group. They would tr- teach traditional Islam and not express any association with any group. Have you found from your experience with those particular political movements, the, the Hezbo Tahrir and Ikhwan al-Muslimin, that amongst their members that they are far more fluid with regards to the kind of schools that they may learn under or some of the, the some of the beliefs that they may adopt meaning that as political movements and parties that they are not restricted to let's say certain theological standpoints like the Salafi movement have you found this? They would have to be because in order to attain political dominance you would have to appease so many different groups yeah, Meaning, so. as political groups, they would have to do that. Yeah. But uh, personally, the shiuch I studied with were not associated with any of those groups. Mm. And personally, I've never been associated with any of those groups. So I would look at them objectively. So whatever good I see, I would point out. But you've never them. debated them, like you like. So that no, means we did. We did debate did you? them. Yes. Uh, the uh, let me tell you about my engagements with Hezbollah Tahrir. Yeah. So the the people of Hezbollah Tahrir who would sit at the back of the masjid, they were not aggressive. But when Umar Bakri yeah. uh, entered the scene, yeah, entered the scene in the late nineties, if yeah. you remember, yeah, yeah, he initially took a traditional stance <laughs> towards Sunni Islam, claiming to be he claimed to have uh, good ties with the author of. Uh, uh, Al Jihad al Qital. Who wrote that? Um, Haikal. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Mm. Now Haikal uh, was is from Jami Abi uh, Jami Abi Nur in Damascus. Haikal has no association with the Umar Bakri, but mm. Umar Bakri would peddle this type of stuff mm. here, claiming he studied twenty books of usul and uh, meaning legal theory and uh, claiming to be a jurist. So he met one of our teachers and there is a video recording of this and the, our teacher started laughing at him and left the, the gathering. Mm. But at that time, he initially claimed to be a traditional Sunni Muslim. When uh, he changed and became overtly uh, not only just Salafi, but also 
takfiri meaning declaring I I remember when he when he moved away from the from his when he became Al-Muhajir. But you have to remember for most people that distinction wasn't there. The, the, even now there's still unfortunately there's still some people that conflate the two. So even for me at the time mm-hmm. there was no distinction. Mm-hmm. At the time, so and I never knew Al Muhajir and his Butahiri. Meaning, I, I confl- even I conflated the two at the time. So that's what led to one of the early debates I had with Umar Bakri. So really? I, I debated Umar Bakri. Really, Umar Bakri, I debated on the phone. So I rang him, and this was in two thousand and four. So okay. I came back from Syria. A phone debate, and uh, I debated him on the the prophets being alive in the grave. So I mentioned a hadith in the Sahih of an Imam Muslim where the Prophet said he passed on the night of Mi'raj, the grave of Musa, he was standing up and praying. Yes. yes. So Umar Bakri said to me that this hadith is weak. Mm-hmm. I said it's in Sahih Muslim because the standard Sunni position is what's in Bukhari and Muslim is authentic. But he said, no, there's a weak narrator. I said, who? He said, Thabit al-Bunani. Now, anyone who knows anything of Hadith science will know Thabit al-Bunani is authentic. He's one of the most authentic students of Anas bin Malik, the companion. So he weakened the Hadith. And the, the proof he gave after this was in a certain area in, in, uh, in the Levant in Syria, they dug up a grave of a prophet and they found nothing but ashes. This was the proof he gave. Hmm. So the debate finished there, meaning he weakened the hadith. And then I had an interaction with Anjum Chaudhary. And hmm. Anjum Chaudhary misinterpreted a hadith. This was in Alamrak. He misinterpreted a hadith saying that the hadith states that a group of Muslims shall raid Al Baytul Abiyad, the White House. Hmm. He said, This is the White House in Washington, D.C. Of course, he did. Yes. So I said. I said to him, the hadith in Sahih Muslim is not referring to the White House in Washington, D.C. It's referring to the palace of the the Persian king. Yeah. And this event has occurred, meaning you're misinterpreting of Kisra, I think the, uh, the hadith. Now, in that engagement, he also denied the hadith of Sahih Muslim. If someone stuck to traditional Sunni Islam, yes, within traditional Sunni Islam, you also have... Uh, people who move towards uh, that method but the th- difference is the traditional Sunni methodology is not what is leading them to that but, but surely you'd consider I don't want, I don't mean to digress into kind of like theological uh, semantics and, and but like the Athari the Athari yeah, they, they're, they're Sunnis right they, they fall, would you regard them as Sunni as see a, the Athari creed is uh, the Hanbalis like in Damascus again in Duma an area known as Duma, the scholars are all Hanbali. Those are Atharis. So you had the likes of Muhammad bin Ahmad al-Safarini, mm. Rahimullah Ta'ala. He has many good works. Le- uh, 12, 11th, he lived in the 1100s. Was Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani Athari? Uh, Hanbali. Hanbali. So uh, you, you also have Ibn Balban. Uh, you have uh, so many different scholars of the Athari creed. What people mix up is Taymiyyah thought with the broader meaning of Athari. So Ibn Qudam al-Maqtasi, all these humbly scholars. Ahmed bin Taymiyyah, Abu al-Abbas was one scholar. So when we express Athari creed, we mean the majority, overwhelming majority of the humbly scholars like Ibn al-Jaw, Abdurrahman bin al-Jawzi, 
uh, and the, uh, the so many other scholars. These are all humbly scholars who are Athari, Sunni from Ahlul Sunnah al Jama'ah. But uh, with Ibn Taymiyyah, he was very learned. He's, he's uh, uh, a scholar of magnificent, magnificent learning. But the mistakes that he made, which he was taken to task for, people conflate that with Atharism, when in fact those mistakes have been critiqued by other scholars and people should not follow him in his mistakes. So, and that should not be confused with authentic Atharism. Bard even goes far as to say that you can't even really compare and conflate many aspects of the modern Salafi movement with uh, Ibn Taymiyyah's uh, works because I mean, I've, I've, we've spoken about this off camera a number of times when we've spoken that um, you make a distinction between uh, classical Athari who are generally from the Hanabila and then Sheikh Ibn Taymiyyah, his, his, his works and some of his beliefs onward, right? But I'd even say like, for example, if you were to compare, and I don't mean to digress, Muhammad Ibn Abdul Wahhab and to compare him to Ibn Taymiyyah there is no comparison. Yeah. Meaning, uh, like, Muhammad bin Abdul Wahab was a leader of a political movement um, that anathematized, declared all the the leaders disbelievers, the Muslims of that time as disbelievers, and and rebelled against the Khilaf. Yes, and rebelled against the Khilaf. Well, or at least provided a theological basis basis to for that rebellion. Back to back to then. Let's say okay. So you do still believe that in light of the many issues that we're facing with Islamophobia, with Prevent, with the reformist agenda, uh, with the LGBT issue that's happening now that's going to kick off in September 2020, with all of that which the Muslim community is facing, you still feel that there is a space and a need for intra-Muslim debates? You see, if we don't have intra-Muslim debate and dialogue in the correct manner, these issues will grow because the people who cause problems for us come from some theological way of thinking, meaning a flawed theological way of thinking. Mm. So a young man who joins ISIS will have a flawed theology. A, a person who deems homosexuality as permissible will have a flawed theology. A person who, who recognizes Israel will have a flawed theology. You will always uh, find this congruency or uh, correlation correlation between flawed theology and flawed positions mm. so so are you then saying that intra-muslim debates or intra i have to specify this because i make a distinction between uh sunnis debating with shia and intra-sunni debate so are you saying intra-sunni no, but you would at the same time even you would not consider someone who believes homosexuality as a sunni of course not. Yes. So, no, no, no. I, I, that becomes an issue of belief and disbelief. If, exactly. If, if, so, if they did not cut the e text, then those, those, if, those, you, if you look at the, the debates, most of the debates I've had, <clears throat> they have been on issues of qatiyat, meaning decisive issues. Of course. So uh, if we do not engage on those things, then we lose uh, recognition of a traditional understanding so, so you're saying that these 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 the, the debates internally among Sunni is, is kind of it keeps you revitalized and relevant and and any bit of Sunnah deniers people who deny the Sunnah the Quran Yun, yeah yes so if that method that way of thinking became common amongst Muslims they would have to be tackled 
Likewise, rejection of Bukhari. But Sheikh, I'm talking about interim, like like Diobandi, Salafis, Brelvi, Ashari, Maturidi, all these different groups that identify as Sunni. Their ulama debating each other on issues which, let's say, debates have taken place centuries ago. Debates on issues they've written about. They've written that literally, like, remember when you and Abdul Rahman as you lot came? Okay, how many books do you remember? And like, I'm very sure from both sides. There was like maybe five to ten books that were, but you lot came with so many books. The point I want to make is, in light of everything that's happening in the Muslim community, you still feel that there is a relevance for these debates. Again, what you're trying to angle at is the, the priorities. 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 If you prioritize, then you, uh, any person who is learned would have to prioritize with those things which are uh, more important, meaning to engage with. Mm. So if you have a choice, of debating a person from any sect and the issue is not a priority as much as another issue then you would have to prioritize that of course would be common sense okay and um, you know uh, you're still very young mashallah may Allah bless you and preserve you and give you good health I mean uh, but of late and by of late I mean the last couple of years I would say um, even though you did that initial interview on radio about not joining the British Armed Forces. But more and more now we're seeing Sheikh Asrar talk about things which traditionally speaking, people from that background have not really spoken about. I'll be honest with you. So you've, you've made some very principled and strong statements against Prevent. You've spoken against Israel. You're talking about uh, Ottoman history and its relevance in our revival. You're talking about uh, the, the issue of Khilafah. You, you, you know, the things are now, you're now broadening on a more public level, even debating atheists now, but like visiting universities. Is this a shift towards empowering youth that generally come from Sufi, Brelvi, Hanafi backgrounds to empower them? to basically get involved in things which other movements had generally dominated since the 90s. You see, the purpose of traditional learning is to train an individual to deal with a host of issues. So if, if someone has uh, traditional learning, they should be able to engage in various things, I meaning not just in one issue, not being uh, monolithic in their approach. So, so why was so why was the nineties such a key era? Look, let's I mean let's not hide about it. I mean the nineties was an era where I personally feel, from my reading, that the Brelvi and Diobandi community woke up and realized, whoa, a lot we're losing many of our sons to the Salafis. We're losing many you of see, our sons the, to his the, uh, to his Tahrir and, and the, other groups. Which early nineties, I was very young, so I don't remember the early nineties. Late nineties, religiously. Late nineties. So, so from the night from ninety six to two thousand, four years of engagement, and even then, I didn't have an association with too many people. I'm associated with Daoud Islami, mm. the uh, the organization that. Uh, Tablig version mm -hmm. uh, from Pakistan. So that was my uh, early association with what people would call Brelvi uh, background and they really gave me uh, firstly I learned how to read Urdu mm. and meaning I read Urdu also and uh, additional to that an exposure to the the scene amongst those people who are traditionally termed as being Brelvi. But at that time I didn't realize the lack of engagement that circle of people have on other issues. But where did I get my impetus to read upon those uh, issues was through those bookshops, meaning an, an exposure to literature. 
So when I would go to those bookshops I mentioned, they had uh, the um, book from Kinswerk, hmm. uh, Peace to End All Peace. So I read that in that period of time. And there was a series of books which uh, uh, Vasco de Gama and the Naval Crusades. 1066, How Islamophobia Entered the British Isles. Some of these books are out of print. How Britain Colonized India. Uh, Pharaoh's Legacy. Ahmed Thompson's The Jal Book. Yeah, infamous book. Yes. Um, uh, Famous, not infamous. Musa David's work, Satanic Voices. Yeah, yeah. Yes. These were books I read in 97, 98, 99, that period of time. And I would say they formulated my way of thinking politically. So I was always engaged in, uh, meaning those early works are, are, are what formed my way of thinking, as well as the autobiography of Malcolm X and a few uh, additional works that I still have. I still have the copies of these books in my library. So that formed my mindset in how to engage politically with different things. But then going uh, ahead and interacting with ulama in Syria also, who I would say uh, in the Syrian scholarship in terms of uh, dealing with atheists, Syrian scholarship in terms of uh, politics mm. is very much advanced, meaning uh, compared to other parts of the Muslim world. But even about like Abdurrahman Hassan Habannaka, one scholar, the son of a Sheikh Hassan Habannaka. He has written works on everything. Sheikh Abdurrahman Hassan Habannaka is a name for you to check out. Opulent. But uh, those who don't know Sheikh Asrar, and those who've not spent time with you and those who are just coming because I know there's more and more interest growing from other groups and movements about you and some of the things that you have said I know this from people I've interacted with even you going and visiting uh, certain events at Barelvi or Barelvi inclined Masajid your message has been quite clear and that is look move away from the kind of uh, Bad practices that are associated with this group and this background and start uh, becoming more um, involved and more prepared and developed in those things which matter. Now, for example, a couple, couple of years ago, you were at a, a conference, Sunni conference, where you actually criticized quite heavily fake beads. And instead you encouraged traditional learning and to equip yourself with how to deal with atheism and deal with these issues. That, for me, the way I understood it was that you're basically were trying to encourage the Shabab that look, times are changing and we need to now kind of undergo more traditional learning and not only the traditional and make it relevant to our reality. Would that be a correct? That would be correct. Meaning, um, Sunni Islam is more dynamic than we make up. Meaning it's the, the range of topics is more broad than permissibility of Gyarmi. Uh, Mawlid, mm. even though to me those subjects have a relevance mm. in their time and place, but there are Muslim figures who, Sunni Muslim figures who have shown that there is a broader picture also being played out. Like in Pakistan, Shah Ahmed Murani was a such a figure. Uh, there are a few others as well, meaning they saw a broader picture of uh, you know things like uh, IMF loans in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. Scholars need to address the economy of Pakistan. Mm. So the, the typical stereotype of a, of a Mulvi in Pakistan is someone who comes from a poor 
background wasn't academically bright couldn't his, make it yes and his parents placed him in a, in, in in a madrasa, madrasa. Yeah, yeah. and then he's limited to to uh, teaching arabic quran and that's no it. not even teaching arabic limited to sectarian issues okay yeah and cannot engage in modern politics or modern economy or modern it's the same uh, teaching children and then going and doing <coughs> some supplications and things like this and is limited to that role so that's the stereotype but now scholars need to to up, engage up, up in the game yes okay you uh, just quickly share how would you define traditional sunni what is the traditional sunni? because i just want to sometimes it bugs me and i say it's whenever i sit with ulama from different schools and backgrounds and when they say ahla sunnah wal jamaa i know i i know that they that in that in their definition they're excluding some people i know that when some say sunni they're excluding some people and it makes it difficult so for me uh, and from the scholars that i learned from we define ahla sunnah wal jamaa as followers of the four schools who stick to ashari maturidi and athari creed now the modern labels like salafi or the obandi or any other label you may have those people need to move back take a step back and leave those labels and go back to the traditional uh, identities so on the, just on that then what when you met with ustad abdul rahman hassan the the the, the pre debate condition meeting i remember very clearly you said i believe in the unity of salahuddin al-ayyubi rahimahullah do you remember you said yes. that to him and i've always said that to you what is that unity number one, and how do you envisage a unity amongst muslims who identify as sunni in the uk so as sultan salahuddin al-ayyubi rahimahullah uh, the first military campaign he undertook was what under nuruddin zengi yes by the way both traditional ashari sufis Yes. Uh, the it was to Shafi to, to yeah to Shafi in school to topple the so-called Fatimi yeah. government yeah. in Egypt. The pseudo caliphate. Yes. So that was a part of the unity. Additional to that, what did he have? He had the his aqidah recited on all the minarets of Syria and Egypt. This uh, the aqidah is printed. The aqidah of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi. Which is what I've never heard of this. It's it's a printed book where he condemns mujassima anthropomorphic beliefs and uh, meaning a traditional Sunni Ashari mm. text. He had this recited from all the minarets and taught in all the masajid. He had the salawat uh, recited before and after the adhan. So if you go to Al Quds today in Al Masjid Al Aqsa after the adhan. They recite As-salatu wa-salamu alayka ya Rasulullah Same in Turkey So Saudi Arabia now prohibits salawat before and after the Adhan But in Al-Quds al-Sharif that has continued from the time of Salah Din al-Ayyubi Additional to that what did Salah Din al-Ayyubi do? He preserved all the historical sites in the Muslim world in, in Egypt, in the Levant and in the Hijaz some of those things are still preserved today. So in Al-Quds al-Sharif, in Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa, 200 Islamic sites are preserved. By the Ottomans, who also did the same, Sultan Salim and... Sultan Suleiman Salim, because they, 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 they spent a lot of this, lot of money in restoration and why, preservation. Why did they preserve all of this? Because this has a relevance. But when we observe the Salafi movement, the opposite is done. Not only... The Madkhali form, the other form. ISIS 
was the uh, the unbridled form of Salafism. And uh, ISIS destroyed this historical site. Uh, Saudi Arabia is the bridal form of Salafism. They also destroy, meaning the Khaybar, um, Khaybar uh, fort is preserved in Saudi Arabia. But the historical sites associated with the Prophet they purposefully destroyed them. So when we say the unity of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, it means the correct theological and political ideology can only preserve Islam. Salafism, pseudo-Salafism cannot preserve the political identity of Islam. It has failed in the past 100 years. Sunni Islam, I'm not saying Brailvism, meaning some of them will say, oh, what is, I don't, meaning Brailvism is a, is a later thing. Traditional Sunni Islam, as was understood by Salah al-Din al-Yubi, all the Brailvis or majority but of they them, say, But they say we're Athari. They say, we, they say we're Athari and, and therefore we should be included within that. Meaning Athari is the, the traditional school of Imam Ahmad bin Hanbal, rahimahullah ta'ala. Who are traditionally also known as Ahl al-Hadith, right? Al-Imam Ahmad bin Hanbal permitted someone to touch the member of the Prophet for tabarruk, blessings, supplicate. <laughs> Al-Imam Ahmad permitted placing the the hair of the Prophet in, in fact, when the Mu'tazila lashed him in the Mekhna, mm. they took his shirt off and he said, look after this shirt because it contains the hair of the Prophet if they had that Athari belief, then there would be no issues. There are so many other things with Imam Ahmad bin Hanbal. Athari creed is the creed of Imam Ahmad, not the creed of Ibn Taymiyyah. Okay, let's put aside then. Okay, okay, let's put aside the unity of Salahuddin al-Yubi. Let's, let's By the way, when <laughs> I went to Al-Masjid al-Aqsa recently, yeah. I went to Jericho. Uh, Salahuddin al-Yubi had preserved the grave, what they say is the grave of Musa al-Salam. Because Al-Kathib al-Ahmar is the red dune hill. Mm. He preserved the site. He had people buried around the grave for blessings. Mm. And he had a, play, a, a seat made for himself where he would, once a year, he would take an urs. You know, an urs, mm. a march from Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa to the grave of Musa Al-Salam to counter the Christian Easter celebrations. Yeah. And he would sit on the seat and then the ulama would do speeches. All of this would be condemned today. If the pseudo-Salafis were ruling Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa, they will do half the work of the Israelis. Mm. Destroy all the Islamic sites, all the graves will be destroyed. Anything which they believe is a sign of shirk, they would destroy. I mean, half the job of the Israelis would be done. So you have the Israelis removing Islamic history in occupied Palestine, and you have the pseudo-Salafis in Makkah al-Mukarramah and al-Madinat al-Munawra erasing, like the house of Sayyiduna Abu Bakr Siddiq is the location of um, is, is the location of KFC today. Mm. Yes, you know, KFC yeah. is built. The Ottomans preserved all of this. We haven't uh, seen these things. That's why we do not realize the immensity of what they are doing. The road that goes down, they call it Misfala, but this is Tariqul Hijra. Why did the Ottomans name it Tariqul Hijra? To mark the, the, the root of the Prophet in Hijra. And they preserved the house of Sayyidina Abu Siddiq. Imagine the, the, the distinction between the rule of traditional Sunni Islam and the distinction of belief of pseudo-Salafism. Likewise, the, the Shia Rawafid, if they ruled, they would preserve certain things, they're, they're, but they would destroy certain things. Yeah. So the only balanced 
theology or the correct there's no such thing as balance the correct theology is sunni islam okay so so let me so let me ask you something and and, and, I, and i have to ask you something and i don't, don't want to go into it too much isn't there evidences from the companions i believe it's umar ibn khattab cut down the tree cut down the tree and and and, and also the leveling of graves okay again Uh, this, uh, that citation of that narration Also something The Ottomans in the early period From the time of Sultan Usman Rahimahullah The very early Ottoman Sultans They never used to build on graves Their graves were very simple Again Answering both things With uh, the With Sayyidina Umar The cutting down of the tree Is cited commonly To justify what they are doing The reason why Sayyidina Umar had the tree cut down is because he said no one knows where the tree is located. The narration mentions this. He That was the incorrect tree. So he had the tree removed. But there are other narrations of Sayyidina Umar preserving the sites. For instance, there was a pipe in Al-Madinatul Munawra. The pipe, water was all flowing from the pipe. Sayyidina Umar said, remove this pipe. Sayyiduna Abbas came and said the Prophet himself had this pipe placed. So Sayyiduna Umar had this pipe uh, replaced, meaning uh, not replaced, uh, returned back to its location. So there are multiple narrations of him preserving the sites, likewise with other companions. These are found in the, de- in the debates, meaning the books between the both groups the, the the sunni muslims cite so many different narrations like anas bin malik preserving the hair of the prophet sallallahu the slippers of the prophet sallallahu from your reading and research have you found anything genuinely from an impartial objective fair point of view from your research and reading of the the prophet sallallahu time and and, and the salaf salihin that period Do you have you found any authentic information and evidences where they did level graves and they did uh, d- discourage? So now we go on to graves. So you, you have the sites mm. and then you have graves. With graves, you mentioned Sayyidina Umar radiallahu Sayyidina Umar radiallahu had tents placed on graves. Structure. I mean, you've seen the Musannaf of Ibn Abi Shayba. He had structures placed on top of the graves, meaning a tent. Umar ibn Khattab. Yes, in the Musannaf of Ibn Abi Shayba. famous hadith um, this, the companions who didn't place things on the grave remember this is a fiqh issue they didn't demolish the graves or no, nor did they uh, disencourage Muslims from visiting those graves the Wahhabis who are in, uh, in, in Al-Baqi today meaning these what they call Mutawa they stand around the, reli- the religious police yes, they disencourage people from visiting the graves which is disencouraging people from knowing the sites, the locations of the graves of the companions of the Prophet If it were up to them, they would stop them. But additional to that, in uh, the discussion on building structures on the graves, the Hanafi school states that the structure that is on top of the grave cannot be longer than an arm's length. There's no doubt on this. There's Mm. a dislike for having a structure longer than an arm's length. If it were limited to when they take over a region, they they bring the level of the grave down, mm. not with diamond dynamites. Mm. You bring in uh, architects who can who can bring the level of the grave with respect mm. uh, because of the person buried under, meaning the grave of Sayyidah Fatima radiallahu anha. Mm. But what they permitted 
is building around the grave. In one debate, I had a debate with uh, a pseudo-Salafi and Asad Beg was there as well. This was in 2007 with their teacher in Al-Madinatul Munawwara. He accepted my point where I said, if a person is buried in a room, that is permitted. He said how, I said, look at the, the grave of the Prophet It has four walls and a roof. He said that's specific to the Prophet I said, if that were the case, why would Sayyiduna Abu Bakr and Sayyiduna Umar be buried there also? So he said, okay, if the room is already constructed, you can bury them, but you cannot build a room. He mm. came to that conclusion, even though this is something absurd. So if, if a, a, an example of this, the grave of Amir Mu'awiyah in Bab Sagheer in Syria. Mm. Today in Bab Sagheer, the grave of Amir Mu'awiyah has a Mamluki structure yeah. and a dome. Imagine if we followed the pseudo-Salafi fatwa, they'll, they'll destroy it. Who would go and attempt to dig the grave? The Rawafid. They would attempt. To the credit of the Awqaf in Syria, they lock the grave and they do not permit anyone to enter because they do not want anyone to uh, to touch the structure of the grave. Mm. So the preservation of the graves is done by building full walls around the graves and, and a roof. This is permitted. And as for on top of the grave, what is permitted is an arm's length of a structure. This is permitted. As for your second question regarding the Ottomans, the early Ottomans, they didn't build structures. Many of the early Muslims didn't build structures, but they did not destroy uh, the, the site of a grave if it had a, a wall around it mm. or disencourage Muslims from the location of those graves. Like the grave of Imam Bukhari in Uzbekistan, yeah. they would go to the grave of Imam Bukhari, rahimullah ta'ala. Additional to that, the likes of Imam Nawawi, rahimullah. When he passed away, he gave the wasiyah, the will, that no structure should be placed on top of my grave. So they built a wall around the grave. At one point, they made a structure on top of the grave. A tree grew out of the grave and the tree destroyed the structure. They cut the tree down, they built another structure. The tree grew again and broke the structure. Some of them count this as his karamat, mm. one of his miracles. The tree grew and then they left the tree and it's a unique tree. It's the only type of tree in the world. What happened when the, with the ISIS, when they took, when they ruled that region, they placed dynamites. Oh, they didn't rule. I think they came, they placed dynamites around the wall and they destroyed the entire maqam. Mm. And Al-Imam Nawawi's grave was in accordance with the Sunnah. Mm. There was no structure. It was in accordance with the Sunnah. Meaning the Sunnah is that the graves be a maximum of one arm's, arm's length. length. Even though the grave of Uthman, um, uh, Sayyiduna Uthman bin Madhu'un uh, uh, the Prophet placed a huge boulder on top. It was so huge that the young men would have competitions on who can jump over the boulder. So that's permitted. And the scholars use this in the Sunan of Abu Dawud. So, so it's an issue of fiqh. But what they have gone and done is destroying Islamic history. Mm. So they have done the job for the, the Israelis wherever they have gone. So and Muhammad bin Salman being pro-Israel and Muhammad bin Salman allowing Muharramat, allowing concepts but not allowing them to mold it. 
you t- what type of injustice is this that which madkhali scholar or pro saudi scholar pseudo salafi scholar pro saudi has outside of the kingdom condemned the kingdom for permitting concerts but not permitting the maulid from my understanding i've not read one yet i've seen i've seen some criticizing but not that you disallow this thing and allow this thing i've not seen meaning it's a great contradiction you imagine a young saudi uh, growing up not visiting the grave of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam there are so many saudis in the kingdom they've been told it's bidah so they don't go they will live in the kingdom and, all their lives and not visit and and they don't visit the grave of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam they are told maulid is haram they are told that we have no connection with the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam as of now meaning he was a prophet he's passed away some of them may believe he is bones some of them meaning this is a belief that some of them hold minority of them but they do hold this and then he he goes to these concerts organized by Muhammad bin Salman will the result not be secularism but it's already started well, if that's one, what's happening one of the highest one of the highest levels of atheism is in Saudi Arabia and then the harshness of the application of sharia mm. meaning application of sharia is also a different subject mm. of course uh, there is a method of applying sharia and the sunni method is has more clemency has more mercy as envisaged in nearly 423 years of the Ottoman state at the very least would you say the khulafa rashidun oh yes of course but but yes. in, no, but in terms Later of history salahuddin mm. salahuddin al-ayubi post the salaf can you name me a ruler who achieved what salahuddin al-ayubi rahimullah achieved <laughs> and his grave is preserved in damascus the salafis rule that grave would also be demolished I meaning they have some enmity against uh, preservation of historical sites look, look, putting, the, <laughs> putting the issue of graves aside yeah uh, i know i raised it uh, but, but but nipping that on the bud now but coming back to the issue of how groups and movements who identify as sunni can unite they can unite on issues here in the uk of uh, concern so Prevent some of the scholars. Can I, wrote, can I name? Some of the scholars wrote a statement against Israel. Yes. 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 Now, Israel is the greatest enemy of Islam today. Mm. Yes. Zionism is the greatest enemy of Islam today. There is no greater enemy of Islam. We should unite against this enemy. From your experience, how many of them are willing to unite on this? I think with the issue of that statement, Sheikh, since we're discussing it now on the podcast, I I got positive feedback on the sentiments of the statement, but I think they were they weren't ready for the way in which it was worded. It was quite so they should word a, a document uh, word a document against the state of Israel and release that document, and then they will find myself. A, a willing signatory to that document so what more unity do you want okay so can i name me some things which you feel that we we can okay so israel is one israel prevent is the list israel is at top of the israel list israel is but not in okay so israel top of the list, but on non specific order prevent do you think muslims can unite on prevent meaning muslims unite against prevent against the, against the prevent strategy and it's very very problematic manifestation within the community it's orwellian uh, yes yes, well, yes. yes. Um, the RSC agenda, the sex education yes. agenda, LGBT, uh, LGBT, LGBT large. Uh, but how many of these scholars are willing to say that homosexual inclinations 
are a desire that a young man grows into as opposed to being born with. Meaning the pseudoscience, I'm against Muslims presenting pseudoscience. Some Muslims do this also when they talk about the miracles of the Quran. They present sometimes pseudoscience. Uh, scientific it, miracles. It's and not that. a scholastic... Uh, a scholar like, like numbers and things like this yeah yes or so many other things meaning scientific data that cannot be verified yeah this claim that people are born homosexual is pseudoscience it's based on uh, the Kinsey, uh, Kinsey report so mm. that was done in the 1930s but that is called, pseudoscience it has no real basis it is no. pseudoscience but it is today sold as fact that people are born homosexual mm. so how many of these scholars are willing to a word, a document and say people are not born homosexual it's a desire that they may have but they are prohibited from that desire mm. I'm gonna, this is the Islamic tradition I don't, I, don't, I don't mean to have a dig at you at all but Birmingham ulama have kind of been very silent from all groups regarding the parents protesting I've been disappointed at that locally the, the reason for that is locally there's not much awareness you, and because I've been engaged the whole country knows about it locally there's not much awareness because I've been engaged with other things, uh, one man cannot deal with so many things. That, uh, meaning, uh, what, what, what the you have to remember the Zionist lobby and the this LGBTQ lobby are the two most powerful lobbies in the UK and in, in America. Definitely. So they will target anyone who opposes them. Yeah. In all ways. Aggressively. Mm. Aggressively. Meaning the, this thing about freedom of speech, it doesn't exist. Mm. We do live in 1984, meaning uh, to a degree. Yeah. So, okay, so would you encourage ulama to start coming out and talking out against quite openly and unapologetically against Israel and the LGBT lobby and these kind of things? Unity on these issues is a powerful thing. So if... If so far the statement on Israel has been signed by 30 plus people, 34. Imagine if hundreds signed that. And you already rocked some feathers. We had an article in the, the Jewish news, the Jewish Chronicle, by their puppet, Fiaz Mughal, the Zionist uh, puppet. Ruffled some feathers. Ruffled. What did I say? Rocked. Okay, ruffled, ruffled some feathers. Yeah. He always tries to correct me, but it's, it's good you did it. Rocked is outrageous. Carry on. Okay, but did you read the article? No, and that was only, th and that was like one of their main media publications, and that was only thirty-three ulama who signed it. Mm. I mean, look, I'd encourage. Obviously, it's, like, hearing thirty-four is is disappointing because you'd think on something as basic and fundamental as Israel Zionism, it should be. No, but, but 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 some ulama they did get back to me. And I, I understand. And, and look, in their defense, right, Sheikh, and I conveyed this to you, so they did say that. Look, many of us are board of trustees. We're part of charities uh, and, and this kind of uh, statement, if it goes public with our names associated, even if we omit our institution with the, with the ICHR definition, IHCR definition, or basically the, the International Holocaust Foundation definition of anti-Semitism, Charity Commission can now come and shut down. So there is an element of fear. Would you say that this is one? That's not necessarily meaning we should not rush to be judgmental of <laughs> no I'm just asking of certain scholars but uh, the statement was said on an independent uh, platform hmm. so there is no involvement of the charity commission I mean if it was said on a platform that is a charity then there would be issues hmm. but it's said as a meaning the statement is signed by individuals as individuals 
And I don't believe legally there, there should be any issues with that. So maybe the legal issue, Sheikh, I, th- I think what some cited to me was, because obviously I, I, I was in contact with a number of ulama from different backgrounds, who, by the way, no one said anything negative about the statement. They were all supportive. But additional to this, what are the issues are there to unite on? Meaning these are the main... Israel prevent LGBT and the reformist agenda. Like, like like changing fundamentals of the deen, like Khilafah is alien to Islam and Hudud does not exist and these kind of things. Well, I think there is a unity on these things. Okay. Uh, so you feel th- these are things which, whether you regard them as Ahlul Sunnah or but if they regard themselves as Sunni, these are things which we can and should unite on. And do you think that these Imams and scholars and these Mashaykh from these different organizations or Madahib would happily share platform if it was for these these areas, these they already concerns. are, meaning there are all they the are, 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 are holding to gatherings together, meaning from various groups, and they are engaging in this. But um, as I said, my stance on the theological debate stays the same, meaning internally we can debate those uh, variant uh, theological debates. Bringing the podcast to an end and bringing it to a closure, I, I'm probably, maybe it's the wrong question to ask, but it's one that needs to be asked inundated with problems domestically, uh, wars, oppression, occupation abroad, uh, the state of the Ummah seems pretty dire at the moment. Um, wait, 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 would you, would you, I mean, you've already, you've already inferred earlier on in the podcast about the end of times, uh, especially what's happening in, in, in Hijaz and Saudi Arabia and these kind of things. From from your reading, your understanding, your observation, where do you see what, what do you, what's happening? Sheikh, what we are think? living on the on the time on the brink of the Great Hashratu Sa'ah. So expect worse thing. The Euphrates River will dry. Hmm. A mountain of gold will appear. Meaning that's a sign the Prophet foretold. From every one hundred ninety nine people will die, foretelling great wars in the Middle East. Uh, people in the Hijaz will fight for the throne, meaning three sons of a king will die fighting for that gold. An army will, from Syria will enter into the Hijaz, meaning these are worse things are yet to happen. So these are ayam sabr days of patience, grasp onto your deen like uh, meaning we grasp onto the deen like hot ember in this time. But Al-Imam Badruddin al-Hassani, Sheikh Muhammad Awama mentions Imam Badruddin al-Hassani was asked in his time, in the early 1900s, do we live in the time where a person is, a patient one is grasping onto an air hot ember? He said no. He said we live in the time that a person will wake up in the morning as a believer and become a disbeliever in the evening. He said in the early 1900s? In the early 1900s. So you had the reformist movements and so many different things. We live in that time. We're safeguarding your Iman. This is why my emphasis on Islamic theology. Safeguarding Iman and then piety. Meaning it's a two-pronged approach. Safeguarding Iman and then action. Meaning sweetness of iman and mm. action and dhikrullah and remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when this is that time we preserve our iman and surely from that would you then say that a natural outcome of that would then be to engage in dawah and activism on certain causes for you the... see where the the result is with Allah yeah I remember discussing with some of the young ikhwani people 
in 2000, they considered protesting as one of the main uh, things that we should do as Muslims. But this is where I disengaged from them, meaning in our dialogue, where I said protesting is not, meaning protests generally do not achieve much. What have they achieved? All it takes is for a legitimate group to do a protest, but then five people entering the pro uh, protest and uh, shouting things which are uh, uh, which are against that very same group, which can then incite the police or incite other people to take action. I mean, protests are not the way the, the Muslim Ummah will progress. There's, there's a strength of Iman faith and action, meaning the Shiu who do mention praying Fajr Salah, meaning a person cannot wake up for Fajr Salah and perform Salah in Jama'ah, congregation, uh, do dhikr of Allah, recite the Quran, memorize the Quran. How will they achieve greater things? وَعَدَ اللَّهُ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا مِنْكُمْ وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ لَا يَسْتَخْلِفَنَّهُمْ فِي الْأَرْضِ The promise is based on two things. Allah promises those who believe from amongst you belief. Mm. You cannot establish anything if you don't believe in angels. You don't have belief in the ghayb. You don't have strength of iman. But وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ But they do good actions. Those are the two things. The natural result of that is istikhlafil ard. But if it doesn't happen, a person can never be disappointed because tama, coveting the dunya is also in an illness of the heart. Mm. And this is where the, the, the four arkan of Islam, what are the four arkan, the four pillars? The, not the five pillars of Islam, meaning the four uh, things Jibreel salam discussed with the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Islam, Iman, Ihsan, Ashratu Sa'ah. So, Islam, practice, Iman, strength of Iman, Ihsan, the spirituality, and the fourth was Ashratu Sa'a, and I would encourage everyone to read upon Ashratu Sa'a, signs at the end of time. Signs at the end of time. Um, bringing the podcast to an end now, uh, I don't know how to frame what I'm about to ask you because, I don't know. Um, so usually we invite our guests to three things. Um we kind of base this from the uh, from the great. Uh, it's one of the it's one of the signs of the ends of the podcast. Yeah, where so I mean, I mean, got the inspiration came from when you know when the companions used to go uh, to lands and used to say, right, it's either Islam jizya or fight, uh, but it's not like that because obviously we're Muslims. So what we tend to do is uh, we offer an arm wrestle or a thumb war. Or I invite you to have some Bengali delicacy known as shibari and pawn. Because I'm not a violent extremist. Go with the, the Bengali. We are not violent extremists. We're not violent extremists either, yeah? We are enthusiasts in some hobbies that involve physicality. Chef, are you going to have some pawn or is it just shibari? Uh, both, both. You go the full way, inshallah. Do you want the uh, crushed rose petal? Yes, Mix everything, put everything. Oh, yeah, okay, do you know what? Make it a real Sileti. Okay, here we go. I'm joining the party as well then, inshallah. Okay, but there's only a bit of pawn. You can have the shibari. No, I don't, I'm not really a big pawn guy anyway, to be honest. I'm trying to break that stereotype. You can make it sweeter for the chef. Come on, no, stop, stop that. It's so what do you do with so this? You put it to one side of your mouth and just leave it there. Yeah. No, 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 no. Just you just chew as it goes. And anything happens to me, we make toba afterwards. Yeah, inshallah. 
Brothers, Sheikh, Zakhla Khair, for honoring us with your presence. Um, hopefully, with the first time of many visits to the Blood Brothers podcast. Inshallah. Brothers and sisters, that's all for today. Uh, please remember to like, share, and comment on this video. Your comment doesn't have to be positive all the time. Just leave a comment. Positive ones. I get too I many know. negative ones. Uh, Do you? So please leave positive comments. Yeah, yeah leave positive ones for the sheikh as well, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, share this video. Subscribe to the Five Pillars channel for our viewers from the United States of America and North America generally. Subscribe to the Mad Mumlux channel. And until next time. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Black Brothers out. Black Brothers Podcast. Five Pillars of Mad Mamluks Production.